Welcome to The Theatre Project. Today, The Theatre Project is thinking about pauses, ums, ahs, you knows, and everything in between. This podcast started out as one thing and morphed into something I think you're all going to enjoy. I hope I'm right. Well, good morning. I'm Mark Spina, and I'm here with my old, 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 old friend, Harry Patrick Christian, who is one of the most fluent speakers that I know. Uh, Harry speaks beautifully, and I always wonder if it's because of all his years as an actor. And I wanted to ask you, Harry, how do you do that? When we do podcasts with other actors and other folks, uh, we frequently have to spend a lot of time editing out the ums, the ahs, and the you knows, but you are remarkably free of those verbal texts. Have you, have you, are you aware of that? I'm not aware of it. Um, thank you very much. I, I, I don't know what to say. I am aware uh, of other people who don't say uh, a lot or take pauses or seem to be fumbling for a thought, uh, particularly Kathy Weiss, who runs the Dell E. Web Center. Every curtain speech that she's ever given, every, you know, board meeting I've attended where she's in charge, I'm struck that she never is at a loss for a thought or what the next sentence is going to be, and she uh, doesn't do what I just did and say, uh, <laughs> scrambling for a thought. And I think it's unique. I think it's a unique thing because humans, we, you know, the hardest thing I ever had to memorize was actual speech from somebody that had been transcribed because playwrights take out all that stuff <laughs> that we do in actual conversation, which is going off on a tangent or switching thoughts in the middle of a sentence, saying you know a lot or uh, what have you. They clean all that up for us and they find the rhythm and the perfect words, but we don't do that in everyday conversation. But uh, to address your actual question, am I aware of it? I'm not aware of it, but I am aware that I have a lot to say. <laughs> and I think that that's probably what I'm responding to. Uh, uh, having just made you aware of it and listening for only that, I did hear ums and ahs and you knows a couple of times in what you just said. Mm -hmm. But because your thoughts are so interesting and so fluid, I don't pay attention to those as much as I might with someone who is just fumbling for thoughts. Your thoughts are very lucid. That The lesson here probably is that if the communication is interesting, we're going to overlook a lot. And if, I think that's true. If there is no clear message, we tend to notice the verbal ticks more. I also think if, I know this from firsthand experience, if a vocal tick is pointed out, it can be like <laughs> a hammer blow to the skull. when because you hear it so much more uh, amplified. There's a mutual friend of ours who's an actor. He's terrific, a sweetheart of a person. And I was completely oblivious to the fact that he uses the phrase, you know, a lot, until it was pointed out to me, and then it became extremely annoying. <laughs> but I, once I also had the conscious thought, this person is bilingual. English is not their first language. The you know is a placeholder, I believe, for him to uh, translate his thoughts into English. That's really what I think is going on. They do say that ums, ahs, and you knows are allowing us to catch up with our, our speech, to catch up with our thoughts. 
-hmm. And one of the pieces of advice they give people who want to lessen those occurrences is one, record yourself and become aware of when you're using it. But secondly, is to get comfortable with a pause, that there really is nothing wrong with pausing to collect your thoughts. It's just that we sometimes get nervous if we don't fill every second. And just rest assured, Harry, that on the other end of this, they can always eliminate all the pauses along with all the you knows and all the us. <laughs> but, you know, the, you know, the, <laughs> the us and those, those placeholders and pauses and stuff, especially I find in stage and film, can be very effective. We've all heard the phrase dramatic pause. Um, and it has to be timed just right, as you know, or it seems like a mistake, or it seems perhaps the actor has forgotten their line if you take too long. The play we just did, um, there was a spot in the script where it, it specifically asked the performer to take an overly long pause. And then as you, you and I discussed, I tried it several rehearsals, and then I realized, ew, doing it this long seems like a mistake because of the, I think because of the rhythm we had already established, perhaps if we had done something else, that, that long, 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 long pause would have not felt as wrong. You know what I mean? Exactly. Oh, you know what I mean? Yes. Another, <laughs> I can confirm Harry that I understand your meaning. <laughs> the, uh, the uh, thing that I notice is that, and I believe it started with soap opera acting when soap opera scripts were dashed off so quickly. They're, they're, they've given more time now. They're a bigger business, and so they, they pay the writers more. But I think soap opera acting in, in the 70s especially, actors started using uhs and pauses to break up dialogue that sometimes was not always terribly authentic sounding. So how do you make inauthentic dialogue sound better? You put in some of these verbal tics that make it seem more natural when you're saying, please don't throw me out into the cold just because my father once robbed the bank that your mother worked at, something like that. Unfortunately, I think now this has permeated every area of entertainment. So actors are using ah uh, so frequently in dialogue, especially on television, that you just can't get away from every line having ah uh, or dot in the middle of it. And I personally find it terribly annoying. <laughs> well, I think we've also evolved uh, into a style of naturalistic acting uh, on stage and film and television, where if people don't make it sound natural, if they're like, if you took uh, the script of all about Eve today, which is extremely literate, florid language, and there is an artificiality to it, but the, somehow those performers pulled it off where we bought it and, uh, to a huge degree, but I don't think that actors could today, but there are exceptions, of course, but I don't think they could pull it off. I don't think they could make that work using the same kind of naturalistic ticks that we're talking about. Ums, you knows, do you know what I'm talking about? Because that's not what that dialogue is. It would sound more false if you threw those things in, I think. Hard to imagine Betty Davis saying um and ah. Well, right, it's true. Any of those golden age stars, and yet they were masters at dramatic pauses. You know, I want to bring this up too. When we, talk about, do. <laughs> when we talk about great actors, um, and who 
I mean, even the general public, people who've never maybe seen a great, great acting or seen a play or anything, they know, of course, instinctively what's good and what's bad. I talk about this when I'm doing workshops with first-time actors. I mean, how do we know what's good and what's bad? But we do know good actors from bad actors because we believe them or we don't. That's really what it boils down to. And I think about the people across the board, the Meryl Streeps, Geraldine Pages, Jack Nicholson, the people that we think of as wonderful actors. Geraldine Page, for instance, has a unique sort of annoying voice, if you think about it. It's high-pitched. She slurs a lot of her words, and she had been criticized for it, and she, she pointed out that audiences don't need to hear every word. It's much like when you're reading, they do that test where they take words out, and they just put in the key words, and you still understand what they're meaning. She felt the same way was true of dialogue, that if, you, you, if the important words were punched out, the audience would get the gist, even if they didn't hear the rest of the words. But what she also added, and what Jack Nicholson and the Streeps and the, the people we consider great actors, is they also use their face, facial mud, uh, muscles, their body language, along with the dialogue, to punctuate it. That it's not just words, it's how you use your whole instrument, the body language, the face. Jack Nicholson is so great at dropping the muscles in his face. Everything's lifted, and then he hears something, and it it drops down. His forehead drops. His jowls drop. His cheeks drop. And it's amazing to see, because you know what he's thinking without having to say anything. But when he's also doing his dialogue, uh, you know, there's musicality to it. I think that's also a key to what makes somebody listenable. If somebody's speaking in a monotone, eventually you're going to tune them out because it's just boring. But if you have someone who their pitch goes up and then it goes down and, you know, it, it's, there's a musicality to it and we tend to listen to it more because we don't, there's almost like the suspense of what, how are they going to do this? <laughs> how, how far are you going to go with this musicality? I think too, it's interesting that you're, you're mentioning tools that stage actors a hundred years ago would never have thought of in the, quite the same way. For instance, dropping all the muscles in your face would not be relevant to William Gillette playing Sherlock Holmes on a stage in front of 2000 people because not even the first row would get that. But these are actors who have trained themselves to work with a camera and to have every facial muscle become part of the instrument. I'm sure the actors of 100 years ago used those tools, but that's not what was playing to the back row of the balcony. They had to rely more on the language. The physicality, yes, but the language was what was going to carry itself to the back row of the balcony if you were watching little stick figures you know, far below you mm -hmm. around on a stage. So they were much more language dependent in those days. You remember, Harry, of course. <laughs> but, you know, I, that's interesting. You're talking about these stage actors because you can you can see some of the... the uh, George Arliss. I don't think people know George Arliss today, uh, but he won one of the first Academy Awards, I think the third one, for Best Actor. But he was a big, big stage actor, and he was born in the mid-19th century. So he was, 
you know, in his 60s before he was making any movies. But he he was doing dramatic pauses and things like that uh, that were very different from what I was seeing other actors of that period on film, like Warner Baxter, for instance. He wasn't doing the same kind of things that we're talking about. I don't know if you've seen George Arliss in Disraeli, which he won his Oscar for, but it's a, it's basically a filmed play. Mm-hmm. But he is riveting. You cannot take your eyes off of him. Even though he's, he's dressed and quaffed like the actual Disraeli who had this bizarre <laughs> swirling dagger of a curl coming down the middle of his forehead, his balding head. So it was <laughs> quite an odd look. But um, I think silent movies also taught actors a lot because when they couldn't use their voices, they had to use an exaggerated version of facial expressions and body language. You know. (laughs) And then sound comes in and they're keeping some of that stuff, I think. Some of that uh, silent movie language. Actresses like Norma Shearer, for instance had a hybrid of the talkies and still maintaining a lot of the silent movie techniques, which could be quite effective, let's face it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sometimes it's a little startling to see her make a silent movie move in the middle of a talkie that must have read great in a silent picture, but suddenly you're thrown out of the reality you're in because it seems like it's a a throwback to something else. Yes. Uh, There's very few moments like that that work today. Although I did see Jeanette McDonald recently do a, a what I consider a silent movie gesture, bringing both of her hands up to her cheeks at the same time in this display of ecstatic <laughs> exhilaration. And yet because that was a musical, it worked it worked. And it, and you felt the same exhilaration. It was almost <laughs> you wanted to laugh but you also were thrilled at it because it it, it was from a bygone era, but it expressed so much. Lillian Gish wrote something about D.W. Griffith saying that he always demanded that his actresses portray excitement that she considered something akin to lunacy. <laughs> Teenage girls leaping up and down, flapping their arms and clapping their hands together, and he would accept nothing less than total abandon. He said she always felt very foolish having to do it. But, of course, he was D.W. Griffith. You didn't say no to D.W. Griffith. (laughs) Well, we do look at some of these older uh, films and wonder what were they thinking. But it was the vocabulary that was accepted at the time. Uh, We had mentioned earlier uh, that we were going to talk a little bit about how when you're playing a character, if the character has vocal characteristics that are different from your own, you may adopt them in real life which I have found, we, like if the character curses, I find myself cursing a little more in real life. Or if, like when I did Santaland Diaries, David Sedaris has a very specific rhythm to how he writes and, and he uses repeated turns of phrase that I found myself then using in my own life until the show closed and I had enough distance away from it. I thought all those actors can pick up ticks that they then carry on to other performances that don't necessarily work. For instance, I saw Jessica Lange and Alec, and Alec Baldwin in Streetcar Named Desire on stage Broadway several years ago. 
And Jessica Lange is a tremendous actress, one of my very favorites. But she had done something earlier on film, and I had noticed it, that when she would have, was having an emotional scene, she would put her hand over her mouth as if to cover it, as if to keep the emotion in. Well, then she goes to stage and is playing Blanche Dubois, and she still had that same tick where she put her hand over her mouth, and it was not good. It, was, it didn't work, and I have a feeling the director didn't shake her of it because a lot of times directors don't direct celebrity actors. They feel like they can't or they're intimidated by them or feel that they're so great that they don't need any direction, which we all know is not true. Every actor needs direction and wants it if they're really good. So, Hattie, you were talking about Jessica Lange. What's the name of that lovely, lovely actress who's in Bullets Over Broadway who works on stage all the time? Diane Wiest. Diane Wiest, yes. And there's, come to think of it, she was not the first lovely actress I was thinking of, but she plays, she plays the girlfriend of the main character in Bullets Over Broadway, Mary Louise Parker. So Mary Louise Parker and Diane Wiest are both actors who go back and forth from stage to screen very successfully, I think. They're not household names the way Jessica Lange and Meryl Streep are, but they, everyone knows their faces, even if they don't always know their names. Do you have any thoughts about people like that who are just working all the time in both, both theater and film and television uh, and do very well? What is it do you think that makes them so successful? Well, I think this, just the willingness to jump from uh, the different performing arenas to go from television to stage to uh, film is, you know, you believe it or not, you do have to use different techniques. You know, you're, they're all acting, but different muscles are required often. Mary Louise Parker is an interesting example as, of an actress that I think of as very naturalistic, but you don't run into people like her in your real life a lot. There's this sort of wispiness, this uh, airy quality, a little girl quality, if you will, that is disarming. And I think if we encountered it in life, we, we might step back away from it. But because that very thing that we don't see in life makes us more curious about who is this person and how do they get through the day being this way. I find the same thing with Amanda Plummer. I honestly don't know how she gets through the day if she is like the characters she plays because she seems helpless and like a waif, you know, who can't even complete a thought or stand properly. And yet she's given brilliant, brilliant award-winning performances. You know, Paul, Paul Newman uh, talks about certain people like, uh, well, Geraldine Page that he worked with, uh, that he calls true eccentrics. There's, they don't have to try to be different. They just are in their real life. And that alone makes them watchable or, some, or listenable. You want to hear what they have to say because they're just different from everyday people. He said he had to work at that. He could never just be that kind of eccentric, even on screen or stage, which he did quite a bit of both. Um, I Anyway, touching back on what we said earlier is what, what do we respond to in performers? I think it really is the ones that we really think of as the best are the ones that utilize their whole instrument, 
not just the voice, but the face, the body language, the silences, which can be, you know, equally fascinating. And I think a lot of it's just the person themselves. Are they magnetic? Do you want to listen to them? I've said before that teachers and instructors and professors have to have some of the same qualities as performers or they won't be effective as teachers. You won't want to listen to them. You don't want to hear what they have to say. So they have to have certain characteristics that make you want to listen to them, hear what they have to say, lean into them. The ancient Greeks had a term, I don't remember what the ancient Greek was, but it translated as bright face. Mm -hmm. And you see that on the street and you see that in movies that there are some people whose faces draw your attention. There's a brightness to it. It's, it's not, it can be beauty, but it can also, it can also be something else. There's an alive quality uh -huh. to the eyes or the face that draws our attention. And I think many, especially screen actors have that. Yeah. I think they have it in life. I yeah. really do. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I find I, people watching me, looking at me, you know, in a social situation that has nothing to do with performing. And then they'll come up to me and they say, you're in show business, aren't you? <laughs> they just know. Because I think there is something that projects out from people who are born for the stage, so to speak. There's a need to communicate also. Yes, and a, a, a need, strong desire to connect with the audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think sometimes that does work better on stage than on film. Because on film, when that's taken away from them, some actors learn to do it through the camera and some don't. And vice versa. Right. Exactly right. I'm fascinated by the discussion that's going on about the new Funny Girl revival that opened with Beanie Feldstein, who was mm, criticized pretty strongly about her performance. But if you really pressed people, what they were criticizing was not her, but her casting. That they cast her was the mistake. It wasn't that she was doing anything inherently wrong it's just that she shouldn't have been cast to begin with now they've replaced her with leah Mich michelle who sang a lot of those funny girl songs when she was on the glee tv show proved that she could do them has already expressed for over a decade how much she wanted to do funny girl now she's doing it replacing the original she can't be up for any awards or anything but she's knocking it out of the park and it's now it's a sellout hit what is the difference? What's the difference between these two actors, actresses? It's not just a physical thing. It's not. Um, it's the ability to fill that role that already the audience has an expectation of what it should be. Beanie couldn't, couldn't step into those shoes quite the same way as Leah Michelle did. And what she did... Everybody's like, oh, you know, it's the second coming of Streisand. We can believe when she sings, I'm the greatest star, that she is the greatest star because she believes it and she can sell it to us. Am I expressing myself properly? It's, no, it's very clear. What, what I'm thinking about is the first replacement always has a higher hill to climb mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you've got the memory of the first, the first which for some people will always be the best. So the, sec 
Number two is almost always going to be a disappointment. People have their disappointment. Number three comes in, saves the show, and they're a hero. We'll never know what would have happened had number three been in the number two slot. No, we won't. We will never know. That's absolutely true. But, you know, I if we look at the recent Hello, Dolly! revival, Carol Channing did it for decades and decades and decades and seemingly put an indelible stamp on it. And then here comes Bette Midler. She knocks it out of the park. Uh, but by all accounts, and I just heard this story the other day, that in rehearsals, Bette Midler was really trying to, to make Dolly Levi a character that wasn't Bette Midler. The audience starts to come. She gets the feeling, oh, they really want to see Bette. They don't want to see Dolly. They're coming to see Bette. So she throws that characterization out, and she gives them Bette Midler. Bette Midler takes a vacation and is replaced by Bernadette Peters, another Broadway legend, a true pro on the stage. She, by all accounts, plays Dolly Levi and not Bernadette Peters. So there are a lot of people who saw that version and said, oh, now that's the Hello Dolly you need to see because you're going to see what Thornton Wilder originally intended. I heard something similar about the understudy for Bette Midler, whose name is escaping me, uh, but there, Donna Murphy. Oh, yes, wonderful yes, yes. And singer, but she also played the character. I've heard that also said that Madeline Kahn did a wonderful Dolly before she died, uh, that some actors are more easily able to embrace the spirit of the Thornton Wilder original material than others. Mm -hmm. so. I think that's true. And, and I think there are some famous performers who realize that the audience really does just want to see them. Now, I, it can't be 100%. I'm sure there are a lot of people who go and they, they would have loved to have seen Beth Miller because she's a terrific actress. She's certainly capable of playing the character as opposed to herself. But at some point, either someone told her or she decided more people want to see me just be Bette and not Dolly. Did you see the production? I did. Yes, I did. And as much as I love Bette Midler, I just didn't feel it had the spirit of Thornton Wilder in it. And and, and many of the Hello Dollies do not. Mm -hmm. Right. Because they're always played by a star, female, right. generally. I think there's always going to be that uh, imbalance of, am I playing what the audience wants to see, or should I be sticking to the Wilder creation? There, just for people who don't know Thornton Wilder's work, there, there's a sadness to the original script of The Matchmaker. It's a, it's a lovely sadness, and it's resolved at the end, but it is about second chances. It is about getting older. It is, it's an emotional journey, and sometimes when it becomes a star vehicle, that journey doesn't take place. So do, do we have any, I, I guess we are just so, you, you must know more contemporary actors, Harry, who are going back and forth between stage and screen right now. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm struggling. Allison Janney is one, you know, she, oh. she's on a TV series called Mom. She does movies on a regular basis. And yet she returns to the stage, not just plays, but also musicals. I think she's uh, remarkable. And as she has gotten older, she's become more famous and harder working, if anything. She's in her 60s now, and, you know, she's won an Oscar. She's won Emmys. She's won Tonys. Um, 
And I think of her, even though she's in her 60s, she's a contemporary actress that young people know, mostly through television. You know, at some point she decided she's going to do it all. And more and more, Denzel Washington. I'm happy to see uh, returns to Broadway and to the stage quite frequently, especially now in his later years. And he's a true A-list movie star. And doesn't have to do stage. Huh? Did he start out in film or on stage? Uh, he was uh, in, on stage in college. He's, he's okay. trained and did all that. But, he, you know, he was in movies at a very early age as well. I, I think that it's easier to go back to it if you have some roots there. I, I can remember seeing productions built around television and, and film stars who had had no stage experience. And they truly became invisible. <laughs> if, if you're not used to being on a stage especially if you're surrounded by people who do know how to command that arena, you really can disappear very quickly. Well, I know Julia Roberts was in a production of Three Days of Rain, and, you know, that was the complaint, is that she just didn't have stage chops. She couldn't project, and I don't just mean vocally, I mean all of it. You have to really get everything across that footlights and to the back row of the top balcony. And that's what a lot of uh, untrained actors or actors who've only done film and television don't realize. That when we're talking about projection, we don't just mean your voice. It's projection of gesture, projection of facial expression. Everything has got to be slightly heightened the, the bigger the house you're in. I always tell my students, you know, the person in the back row <laughs> needs to see the same show as the person in the front row. You know, they paid their ticket price and uh, they should see the same performance, which is going to require more. No camera is coming in for a close-up. <laughs> so a small gesture is just not going to read the same way on film as it does on stage. You have to find a different choice, say, than a raised eyebrow. Um, you know, although a raised eyebrow, if it's visible, can be very, very effective. It's just that, you know, I always say, I, I agree with Betty Davis, more is more and better. <laughs> I think we've gotten into a habit of becoming too naturalistic in our acting, especially on stage. People are so used to seeing film. Is something wrong? No, uh, my producer has handed me a note. Uh, you know, Angela Lansbury just passed away. Oh, I'd love and to talk about Angela Lansbury. Yes, and she certainly has had you know a long career on both stage and screen, although she certainly, she must have done, I'm sure she did stage work early in her career, but she started in the studio system so very young. Mm -hmm. She did, she and, did indeed. But I think, you know, she also had parents who were in show business in London. Her father died when she was young, but and her mother brought her and her sibling to America and they, because they were both performers, the mother took, she sensed that Angela had a gift and the mother could act as well. So they went to Hollywood. And as we know now, Angela was a teenager and got a nomination for supporting actress for her very first role in Gaslight. And I just heard an interview with her the other day and she was talking about how she doesn't, watching it now, she doesn't know where she got that boldness from she said the, the character had experience that she herself did not have in life. But I do think growing up around performers, 
she was able to observe a lot of behavior that perhaps younger people weren't privy to. And my understanding is this, that she maybe had done some stage work in London before she came here as a teenager, but she didn't really get to do stage work again until the late 50s and early 60s. When, she, well, it was after she did Manchurian Candidate, which was a highly praised but extremely villainous part. And she saw the writing on the wall. She's like, I, I need to do something different with my career, or I'm going to be this kind of second tier supporting character actor who's now going to be playing these villainous roles that she just didn't want to be stuck into. And that's why she felt that she prost prostrated herself for the creators of MAME. She had to go back and audition time and time and time again to prove that she could be a leading lady, a glamorous leading lady. And as we know, it worked. Uh, I think Angela Lansbury is a, a perfect example of someone who communicates in a way that, that draws you in, that makes you want to listen to what she has to say, whether it's in an interview or in performance, stage, screen, television, even animated voice. She's just got it all. But she also, like, when you watch her talking in an interview, she uses those hands almost the way an Italian uses their hands for emphasis, for, for accentuating a word. And it's so delicately done that you're not quite a what You don't consciously see that she's doing it, but you subconsciously pick up the words she wants to emphasize because she does it with her hands. And I love that. I, I find it's beautiful. And of course, she's got those huge expressive eyes and the way she holds her head is often at a tilt. I think she's a master at communication in whatever form she was doing. Loved her. Yes, she she really was on track to always play the second fiddle, not very likable woman on films. She was fr frequently being put into that role, the cold society woman, mm -hmm. the unfaithful wife, uh, the murderer. So she, it was a very smart career movie. It opened up a whole nother avenue for her and she had a wonderful film career in a completely different way yes. pre imposed name. Completely different, I know. And it's thrilling for performers to see that happen to some other performer, someone who has been sort of taken for granted for a couple of decades, and then, boom, they show another side of themselves, and it's exhilarating. And I think the audience picks up on that as well, people who are not in show business that there's something magical happening here when someone really gets to use all their gifts to the full extent. Yeah, the overnight success that takes 20 years. Of course, she was also a success from a very early age, but just in a very different way. Exactly, yeah. Her career had many chapters. Yeah, and she turned out to be one of the most beloved performers of all time. Uh, you know, she was in the very first Broadway show I ever saw, which was Sweeney Todd. And I remember being off balance watching the first act because it wasn't what I had expected Broadway musicals, musicals to be. It was so dark and scary. And then, of course, they get to the end of the first act and they do A Little Priest, which is this hilarious, <laughs> macabre, black humor song. And, and I realized, well, the whole first act is really a buildup to that number. The payoff is that number. But Angela Lansbury tempered that show. I've seen other Mrs. Lovitz who were too dark, perhaps, or too funny. And she was right, perfectly balanced, I think, in playing both 
the darkness of the character and the hilarity of it. I think she she somehow dumbed down Mrs. Lovett enough so that when the, the fact that she could come up with these ideas was a surprise to the audience as well. Here's the real story. Two nights after seeing Sweeney Todd, I this was my first trip to New York and I had come up with a group of dancers who were participating in the Dance Educators of America competition, which was a national competition. At the end of the week of competition, they had a big uh, ceremony in the Waldorf Astoria Ballroom where they also gave awards annually to performers who had contributed to the art of the dance. And that year, the winners were Gelsey Kirkland, who was an actual ballet star, Lucy Arnaz, who I'm not sure what exactly she contributed to the art of dance, but <laughs> she was in New York at the time, and Angela Lansbury and Lynn Carriou, who were starring in Sweeney Todd. Now, we don't think of three of those four <laughs> as dancers, so I'm not really sure. But having seen some footage of Angela Lansbury doing Thoroughly Modern Millie on the Oscars, she was a real dancer. I mean, unbelievably good dancer. Anyway, I got to the ballroom early, took my seat. Angela Lansbury is sitting at the head table. There's hardly anyone in the ballroom. We make eye contact. I must have grinned in a stupid way. She motioned for me to come up to the table where she was sitting. I did come up to the table and I told her I had seen Sweeney Todd and how much it was my first show and how she had blown me away. The show had blown me away and she was as gracious and kind. And then she motioned for me to come closer so she could whisper in my ear. And she said, you know, down at the end of the table, I doubt you'd recognize him because he doesn't have any of his makeup on, is Lynn Carriou, who played Sweeney Todd. And I'm sure it would mean the world to him if you went and told him what you told me about how you enjoyed the show and that it was your first show and so on. And I, I've never forgotten how gracious and lovely, giving and kind and generous she was to me and to Lynn Carriou. Because the truth is, I doubt most of the people there knew who he was. He's a Canadian actor, predominantly stage work at that time. And he was unrecognizable with his stage makeup off. So it was just an extremely memorable, beautiful gesture. And I don't think I've ever met a celebrity who was as kind and gracious or as talented as she. So that's my very special Angela Lansbury memory. And I, <laughs> I was really as many people were heartbroken at the news of her death, even though she lived an incredibly long, glorious, fulfilled life. As someone, one of my friends said, it was like losing your favorite auntie. And it was because she has been a part of our life, my entire life, your entire life. There's been an Angela Lansbury, right? Yes. I, I was refraining from saying something, Harry. <laughs> I do occasionally hold back my fire. You say fire, I say barbs. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Harry, for being with us today. It's been, as always, a pleasure listening to you speak so elo eloquently about the film and stage and actors. And you, your, your passion for the theater, I think, is what has always been the, the spark of our friendship. And it's always a joy to talk to you. And you too, buddy. I, you know, this was a tricky conversation as far as staying on topic but i i always enjoy talking with you and i'll try and bone up on younger performers <laughs> for our next 
podcast. I'm working with lots of younger performers. They're just not quite famous yet. I'm sure they will be under your tutelage. I'm sure they will. <laughs> Thank you so much, Harry Patrick Christian. Thank you, Mark Spina. Have a beautiful day, buddy. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Theatre Project Thinks About. It's always great to listen in on Mark and Harry's conversations. Our audio engineer was Gary Glor, and our theme music was by Gail Liu and Damien DeSandes. Visit thetheaterproject.org to sign up for our mailing list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And there are plenty. And if you liked what you heard today, please consider leaving a comment on our Facebook or Instagram page. That's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.